Hello, and welcome to the Neshama Project podcast, where we explore spiritual tools for human thriving. I'm Rabbi Ben Newman. This week, in honor of the Hebrew month of Nisan, we will be discussing Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, also the Divine Feminine, with a very special guest, Rabbi Jill Hammer, PhD. She's the Director of Spiritual Education at the Academy for Jewish Religion in New York. She's the co-founder of the Kohenet Hebrew Priestess Institute. And she's also the author of a number of books, including Return to the Place, The Magic, Meditation, and Mystery of Sefer Yitzirah, and Under Torah, An Earth-Based Kabbalah of Dreaming. Welcome, Rabbi Jill Hammer, PhD. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to begin by asking you uh, the question that I've asked pretty much every scholar Kabbalist that I've had on this podcast, which is what brought you to study Jewish mysticism? It probably started when uh, my mother gave me a Hanukkah present when I was 16 or 17. And the Hanukkah present was uh, the 13 petaled rose by Adin Steinsaltz. And if you're familiar with that book, it's a, it's a very deceptively simple little poem about uh, the basics of Kabbalah in a poetic mode, really not in an explanatory mode, but in more of a poetic mode. Uh, and I was really quite enamored of it. It was a, a lovely book. It spoke to something in me. Uh, and that was probably the first language for Kabbalah I had. And not too far separated from that in time, I had the first Jewish catalog that was probably also a present. Uh, and at the end of the Jewish catalog, Reb Zalman gives a meditative exercise. And that had a big impact on me. Sort of the idea of kind of journeying in the imagination was very important you know, for my later practice. Uh, so those two things together uh, were probably my start. Uh, and I guess if I had to sort of factor a third thing, and I would say that in my college years and later, I was reading feminist theologians, some of whom were drawing on Kabbalah as a source, you know, who were talking about Shekhinah, uh, or in some other way, drawing on the ideas of Kabbalah as, you know, as a source for their own theology. Uh, so that sort of set me off and running. And you know, since then, I've you know, been interested in a variety of Jewish mystical texts and practices. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And um, my second question I wanted to ask you, which I've also asked pretty much everybody who's been on my podcast, is um, how do you balance the academic study of Kabbalah I mean, you're a scholar, right? Uh, with with your practical application of it and your your use of it as a spiritual tool. Yeah. It's interesting that you ask. Uh, when I wrote uh, one of my recent books, Return to the Place, which is a translation and commentary on Sefer Yetzirah, which is this ancient book of Jewish mysticism, very short, very cryptic, very interesting, a book that has uh, been a great source of practice for me uh, because it has a lot of... Uh, body-centered, earth-centered kinds of mystical uh, approaches in it. 
And when I began to create my commentary, it was clear that it was going to be a hybrid, uh, that it was going to have a scholarly component where I tried to talk about where I thought the text might be coming from uh, and you know, what the words meant and you know, what the influences appeared to be. Uh, and a practice component that was going to talk about how to spiritually work with the text. And a friend of mine said to me, you wrote a platypus, you know, by which he meant, you know, you, you wrote a book that is neither one thing nor the other. Um, and that's true, uh, although at least one scholar came to me later on and said, I, I want to write something the way that you wrote Return to the Place, uh, you know, with a practice component and a scholarly component, because usually those things are held as separate, right? People who do practice are separate from people who do scholarship, but they don't feel separate to me. Uh, because for me, the scholarship informs the practice. You know, if I don't understand the book, you know, I can't, I can't make a reasonable guess at what the practice it, it is inviting might be. Um, and I think that for me, without the, without the practice piece, the scholarship does not feel as meaningful uh, because it doesn't feel as alive in the present. So for me, those things go together, although I know that for, you know, many others, they don't go together. You know, for me, they, uh, they do. I think the one other thing I would say about it is that the, there's a way to do practice in an uncritical way, right, where you're sort of accepting the mythic view of the book. And that tends not to be my way. You know, I, I, I don't think the Zohar was written by, you know, Shimon Bar Yochai, for example. You know, that's just sort of not my way of approaching. I don't think Sefer Yetzirah was written by Avraham. You know, that, that's not my way of approaching the book. You know, so I have to come at it from a different angle. You know, when I'm thinking about, you know, what is the spiritual uh, value or authority, you know, of the text that I'm reading. And in some ways, it doesn't matter, right, if Avraham wrote it or if, you know, some, uh, you know, three different authors were edited together in the, you know, in the sixth century. What matters more, really, is, is what's come down to us. You know, it's, it's, you know, what we're encountering, I think, that matters. So I'm not, you know, it doesn't bother me so much, the, you know, the questions about authorship or about, you know, authenticity. So can, can we get into the study of uh, Shekhinah a little bit? Sure. So when I teach about Shekhinah, I usually start with the biblical texts, even though the word Shekhinah doesn't appear anywhere in the Torah. Um, the, the overarching idea of divine presence basically comes out of this Jewish struggle to mediate between the notion of an intangible God, a God that who's, you know, not, doesn't have a body, doesn't, you know, um, you know can't be sensed, Right? And the experience that sometimes we can sense the numinous, right? Sometimes we have a sense that God is present, that God is imminent, right? How do you reconcile those two things, right? And one of the ways that those two things are reconciled in the Bible is with this idea of the divine cloud. Hmm. Right? It's usually called the kavod Adonai, right? The glory of God, or it's called the anan, right? And that cloud is a tangible um, offshoot of or a, or a tangible extrusion of the divine. It is not perhaps itself the divine exactly, right? But it is a, uh, an emanation of, of the invisible divine in a tangible way, right? And that's what the Bible calls kavod Adonai, right? The glory of God, right? Or the anan, 
right? Adonai, the, right, the, the, right, the divine cloud. And this divine cloud is particularly said to rest on the Mishkan, on the tabernacle, right, which is this temple-like portable shrine that the people are taking through the wilderness. And, you know, when they dedicate it, this cloud comes into the tabernacle and fills the whole place and nobody else can go in, right? There's this tangible entry of the divine presence into the sanctuary. And this is what the tradition later calls Shekhinah, the indwelling, right? That which dwells uh, from the root Shekhin, right? Uh, to, uh, to dwell or to be neighborly, right? To, you know, uh, to, to live near. Uh, and so they take this word Mishkan, right? Which means the place of dwelling, and then they make it a different kind of noun, right? Shekhinah, which is the dwelling or the indwelling. Uh, and so in the time of the Talmud, you begin to see this Kavod Adonai um, spoken of as Shekhinah, right? Or the Shekhinah. It usually takes a, it takes a, the article, the Shekhinah, HaShekhinah, or Shekhinta. Uh, and I'll, I'll just mention a couple of rabbinic texts about, about the Shekhinah. Beautiful. You can really see in these texts that they are struggling with and how can God be tangible and not tangible? And so they kind of do this split, right? Where there's the main body of God, which is not tangible, right? And this uh, emanation, right? Uh, uh, that proceeds from the divine, which is tangible and which is God, but also not exactly God. So let's move from the biblical to the rabbinic view. Where would you like to start with the rabbis? I want to start actually with Numbers Rabbah 12.6. So this text is wondering about the question of the Mishkan. Like, how could it be that we say that the divine presence fills the Mishkan where God is everywhere, right? If God is everywhere, it doesn't make sense to say that God filled the Mishkan. God was already in the Mishkan and everywhere else, right? Uh, so they say, like, what is the thing like, right? What can we compare this to? How can we understand it? It's like a cave on the shore of the sea, right? Right. The sea roars and the cave becomes filled. So you can imagine this, right? Sort of the beauty of the right of the ocean, right? Sort of rushing in, roaring into this cave, right? And the, and the majesty of that. Uh, and the and the sea doesn't lack anything. In other words, the sea doesn't get smaller. Right, because it right because it enters the cave, and then they say this is uh, the way it is with the Shekhinah. Right, the sacred shrine becomes full of the Ziv HaShekhinah, the radiance of the Shekhinah, but the world doesn't lack the presence. Mm-hmm. And they're using this image to convey that there is a rushing of the of the Shekhinah into the sanctuary, but the Shekhinah doesn't get smaller. Right, but there is uh, there's a, a majesty right to the um, the strength of the entry into the Mishkan. Now, there's a way that this analogy doesn't make sense, right? Because the cave is actually empty of the sea until the sea comes in, right? But the divine presence is everywhere, so they're kind of fudging it, right? In in their explanation, but they're also giving you a sense of the 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 power of it. Right, that there's this vast thing called the sea, right? And we know the sea is much bigger than this little extrusion that comes into this cave. 
And yet there's something incredibly majestic and powerful when we see that happen. And so they're trying to convey, I think, the feeling, right? Oh, you know, what it means to feel that God has suddenly become present, even though we know God is present everywhere, right? But there's something about the feeling where God becomes extra present in a particular place. Right. There's a, a, a human experience of God's presence that is that God isn't always present, <laughs> that right. even though God is always present, right? We have the experience of absence and presence and absence and presence, and that we find some places to be more full of divine energy than others, and sometimes to be more full of divine energy than others. But the truth is that it's everywhere at all times. Right. I, I guess that brings us back to the, the Mishkan, right? Why did they even have to build the Mishkan? Right, this is exactly the, the problem, right? Is that if you have a God who lives everywhere and has no tangibility, well, you know, why would you need a sacred space? But people, of course, do need sacred spaces, right? And they, they do have a sense of the tangibility of the divine, right? So how do you, how do you mediate those two opposing truths? Right. And that's I think what they're trying to explain, right, in this in this passage. So do you want to take us to the next uh, text? So what I'd like to sh uh, to turn to now is uh, the Talmud uh, Shabbat 12b. Okay. Um, there are a number of places in the Talmud where the Talmud discusses where the Shekhinah dwells or where the Shekhinah comes. And the Shekhinah comes when you're studying Torah, and the Shekhinah comes when you're, uh, you have a minion, and the Shekhinah comes when there's a Beit Din doing judgment, and the Shekhinah comes right, when you're doing tzedakah, right? and all, the, all these ways that the Shekhinah becomes present, which is this kind of metaphysical reward you get you know, for doing mitzvot in community, right? is that the Shekhinah kind of arrives and, and is present right, for those things. It, you know, there's a... Um, there's a response from God. There's kind of a showing up, right? That God does in response to these these sacred uh, acts that humans are doing. One of my favorites uh, is this text, uh, Shabbat 12b. So one who enters to visit a sick person should not sit on the bed and should not sit on a chair, but rather should mitatev, should wrap up at a talit and sit before the person on the floor uh, and why should they do this kind of odd thing? Um, because Shekhinah is above the sick person's head. Um, and you know, then they provide a proof text. But this is a really interesting um, text, right? That the Shekhinah is actually visiting the sick person. And if we visit the sick person, we should assume the Shekhinah is tangibly there. So much so that we actually have to sit in a way that is respectful to the physical presence of the Shekhinah that's there. So is it that you feel the Shekhinah more when you're visiting a sick person? I'm not even sure it's about feeling, right? Because it really isn't about the experience of the visitor, right? It really is about the sick person and the Shekhinah are having a moment Right? And if you go and visit, you have to respect that. Right? You have to sit in such a way that you acknowledge the presence of the Shekhinah. So you might be right that this text is talking about sort of the feeling that we have right, in, you know, in a room with someone who's suffering. Uh, but, that, but the way that the text is expressing it is that the Shekhinah is physically present 
it, so you have to be respectful, right? You can't sit as at the level of the Shekhinah, right? That would be rude, right? Uh, so there is this sense of the, the embodiment. So Shekhinah literally there. Right, right. I was actually just going to, to uh, talk briefly about the way the Shekhinah appears in Echa Rabbah, in Lamentations Rabbah, where the Shekhinah appears much more as a, um, as a personalized figure than she does in these sources that we've just talked about, right? Where we're really talking about some kind of cloud, right? Uh, but in Echa Rabbah, the Shekhinah is much more like a person, right? And, you know, when the... You know, when the enemies are coming into the sanctuary, you know, she's sort of hiding in the sanctuary and trying to stay there and then eventually being driven out, right? And then she goes into exile with her people, right? And she goes with the children and she goes with the, you know, with the, uh, the elders. And, you, and she mourns because, you know, she's been chased out of her home. You know, so there's, there's a much more personalized uh, sense of who the Shekhinah is, right? And then you, you get that in spades when you get to the Kabbalah, right? And the Shekhinah is the bride, right? And, and she's, right? And her union with the Holy One is depicted as a marriage, right? Or it's depicted as a, you know, a parent-child relationship in certain cases. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I'm also thinking about uh, Rachel crying for her children. Right. Uh, right. Is that Jeremiah? Jeremiah, I think, or yeah, thirty-one, I think. Um, yeah, um, in fact, that's probably where some of the images of the Shekhinah come from. Is from that text about Rachel weeping for her children, right? This kind of proto proto uh, typical mother, right, of the people, right, who's weeping. This is a classic Near East ancient Near Eastern image as the weeping mother, right, whose tears redeem the one that she's weeping over. So that's Isis and Horus, and that's uh, um, uh, uh, Sirtur and Dumuzi. Like there are the multiple stories about the weeping of the mother and the kind of the metaphysical significance of that. And that quintessentially is Jesus and Mary, right? That um, trope gets picked up by Christianity, uh, but it also very much fits with the Shekhinah and uh, the uh, you know, and the people of Israel, right, who are her children. And it's it's really kind of the same mythic image, right, um, but in a, you know, in a Jewish context. And in a Jewish context, it actually allows for a psychological split, right, because Echa is assuming that it's God who is punishing the people, right? God is angry with the people, the people haven't been loyal, right, and God is punishing them, right? So that's a very scary image. Right? And the Shekhinah is not really in that camp, right? The Shekhinah is witnessing the people, is suffering with them, right? Is defending them, right? Is in exile with them, right? So there is a part of God that they can turn to, right? That is not angry with them, right? That is not the author of this exile, right? But who is with them in the exile. Uh, so it, it plays a very important psychological role, I think, you know, in the development of, you know, it, it's a need, you know, of the Jewish people to have a divine aspect, you know, who's in solidarity with them, you know, in, you know, in this very difficult experience of exile. As we started to get into Kabbalah, I just wanted to mention this idea of Shekhinah as a tree 
uh, as I had a whole discussion with Professor Yossi Chayes in Shvat about the tree in the Sefer Bahir. Do you have anything to say about that? Right, the, the, the Sefer Habahir basically says that, you know, basically says the tree is Shekhinah. Now, the Kabbalah doesn't really go that way. Like, they really have a very, a more complex idea of what the tree is. But but, this, but the Sefer Habahir, I think, understands the tree is, is a, you know, the growth of Shekhinah. You know, God says, I planted this tree and it takes care of everyone and it nurtures everyone. Uh, and I, I think that Sefer Habahir means means the Shekhinah when it talks about the Yilan, about the tree. So let's dive into Sefer Habahir. What would you like to teach from Sefer Habahir? Um, the, the piece that I'd like to teach from Sefer Habahir, right, which is this sort of 12th century text from Provence um, that is you know, an early Kabbalistic text. Uh, in Sefer Habahir, the Shekhinah is often described as God's daughter. Now, in the Zohar, that happens also, but it's more common for the Shekhinah to be described as God's partner, right, as God's wife, right? But in uh, Bahir, we often hear of the Shekhinah as God's daughter. And these passages are really valuable for understanding the fundamental uh, idea of the Shekhinah, because they're basically talking about the Shekhinah as a mediatrix, like as a portal between God and the world, right? That Shekhinah is the airlock almost that allows the divine to communicate safely with human beings. Uh, so this is Sefer Habba here, 54. So it, it's asking like, what is the thing like, right? Sort of offering this analogy and saying, so the king used to have um, the, uh, a good, pleasant, beautiful, perfect daughter. Right? And he wanted to marry her. He married her to a royal prince. So the prince is going to be the, the people. And he gives her all kinds of wonderful things. He gives her clothing and he gives her a crown and he gives her jewels. Uh, and then the book asks a strange question. He says, the book says, is it possible for the king to uh, dwell without his daughter? Mm. Is that possible? And the book says, uh, no, right? You should say it's not possible for the king to be without his daughter. Is it possible for him to always be with her? Also, no. So this is, right, this is the articulation of the problem, right? Is the Shekhinah part of God or not part of God? Yeah. Right? So what does this king do? He has a dilemma. He does never want to leave his daughter, but he also has to leave his daughter. Well, he can place a window between them, Veno Uvena, right? He can place a window between him and her, right? And then whenever the father needs the daughter, the daughter needs the father, they can come together through the window. So there's this image of the window that the Shekhinah, right, has this window into the other world, right? And only she has access to this window, right? And by implication, this means that when humans want to be in connection with God, right? We really can't directly contact the transcendent, but we can contact this imminent um, being, right? An entity that proceeds from God, right? And that entity will provide us with a window to the transcendent, right? And I like to think of her as like mediatrix, right? The one who mediates, 
Um, and Mary's also called the mediatrix. So that's, you know, interesting. You know, there is some parallel there. Uh, so I find this really beautiful, right? This idea of the window, right? That the, the, the Bat Melech, right? She has this. So there's another text that fills this out a little bit more. And is talking about the 32 paths, which are a concept in Sefer um, Yetzirah, that there are 32 paths between God and the world. And again, asks sort of to tell the parable, like, what is this like? And says, so there was a king and he was in the innermost of many chambers. There were 32 of these chambers and to each chamber, there was a path. And the Bahira asks another kind of rhetorical question, right? Should the king bring everyone into the royal chambers through these paths? No, the king shouldn't do that. Should the king reveal his jewels and his tapestries and all, you know, his hidden things and his precious things? No, right? it wouldn't be good for the king to do that. So what does the king do? He touches the daughter and he includes all of these paths, all of these ornaments, all of these beautiful things in her and in her garments. And anyone who wants to go inside right, should, should look at the daughter. So again, it's like there are these hidden treasures right, in the transcendent realm. And it's not proper or more likely it's not possible for the king to make these treasures accessible to mortal beings. And the only way he can do that is by giving her these treasures and she can then provide them right, to the mortal realm. Now you can see how this overlaps with her being the Torah, right? One of the manifestations of the Shekhinah is the Torah. Right, so that's a way that we get to receive God's gifts, right? The Shekhinah is a manifestation of Sh right? The uh, right, Shabbat is a manifestation of the Shekhinah. So that's a way that we get to receive, right, these divine gifts. But we can't get them directly from the transcendent, right? From what the Zohar would call the right, the Insof, right? Right, the you know, the higher realms. We can only get them through the Shekhinah. So this gives her a tremendous power. And interestingly, it also replicates this ancient Near Eastern idea about women, which is that they are liminal, right? Because unlike men, women can go between families, right? They can start in one family and end up in another family, right? So they have a liminal quality, right? And we actually see this manifesting in the Shekhinah, right? That she, because she can marry the physical world and still is connected to the immaterial world, Right, she is. She has access to this liminality. Beautiful, and and you know, I was going to ask you. This begs the question, right? What's the what's the way that we can gaze at this Shekhinah that has the thirty-two paths within her? And you sort of answered that already by saying by practicing Torah study, by doing Shabbat. And so, in a way, I I feel like you're saying that Shekhinah is the practice. Hmm. That's exactly what the Baal Shem Tov says. Shekhinah, he had, he had tefillah. Shekhinah is prayer, right? She, you know, she is the embodiment of the prayer. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, I think it's more, also more complicated than that, but I think that that's right. I think that she's embodied in the practice. And they're probably also talking about mystical experience. 
right? That, you know, gazing at the daughter, you know, also means, you know, a kind of mystical experience, you know, of meditation, of, of contemplation. Now and you can't have that all the time, right? So back to that same paradox, right. Right, that she's absent sometimes and she's present sometimes, even though the divine is always present, um, she's the way that we can feel that presence. Right, right, exactly. Beautiful. Do you want to take us to a Zohar quote? So I'll, I'll look at a couple of Zohar quotes. So here's a, um, a, a very classic Zohar quote. And so Zohar, right, this 13th century text from Spain that includes many, many of the ideas of the Kabbalah. And the Zohar conceives of the relationship between the Shekhinah and the divine as an, actually a much more complex relationship in which the Shekhinah is one of 10 divine personalities and she has different relationships with these different divine personalities. Um, one of those personalities is her spouse, sort of the, the center of the tree of life, Tiferes, the holy one of blessing is her spouse. And then the Chochmah, the Abba is her father and Bina, the Ima is her mother. Uh, so there's a whole familial metaphor happening. Uh, but let me focus for a moment on the, the marital metaphor. Uh, so the Zohar is, is talking about Friday night, is talking about the, the Shabbat, and says that night, that night is the joy of the queen with the king and they're uniting. Right? And they're uniting is, is actually a very explicit word. Like it really means to, you know, to have sex, right? To that, that the, the Shekhinah is in a, a physical erotic intimacy with the masculine aspect of the divine. And it's because of this mystical uniting that is happening among aspects of the Godhead in the hidden world, right? That it is proper on Shabbat, uh, on Arab Shabbat, right? That those who are really aware of the secrets of the universe, you know, know that this is a special night to have erotic intimacy because you are reflecting uh, the, uh, you know, the intimacy that the divine aspects are having with each other right up in these hidden realms. Uh, and for the Zohar, it's very important for humans to be always enacting what's happening in the other realm, like particularly in a positive way, because that uh, primes the pump. It kind of uh, invites this positive interaction to, to go on happening. Uh, so that's, you know, that's one of the, you know, one of these kinds of interactions. And here's another one. So this one is in Zohar 148a. Uh, where they're talking about the practice of Shabbat candles. Uh, and it talks about how the Shabbat candles were given to the Neshei Amakadisha, the women of the holy people, uh, to light. Uh, and then it gives the Talmudic reason for this, which is not a nice reason, which is that it's because Eve put out the candle of the world, right? Eve brought death into the world, and therefore women light Shabbat candles. That's awful. It's a misogynist thing to say. Uh, and they say, well, that's all right, but we have another explanation. Uh, and they say it's because the the shelter of peace that we receive on Shabbat, right, is the matronita. The matronita is a word for Shekhinah. Uh, and the Shabbat in, in its, you know, kind of shelter of peace embodies the Shekhinah, the matronita. And the souls that are the candles on high are dwelling in her. So it, it's this beautiful image, right, of the Shekhinah as a kind of, womb or a you know a, a home space 
right? And all of the souls, right, are living inside her, right? This is a way that the Zohar understands the other world is that the Shekhinah is um, housing basically for the souls, right? They, uh, they, they live inside her. Uh, and it's in the role of the Matronita that uh, people light, right? And because they are lighting, right? The mother gives Sabbath souls to her children, right? So because the people are lighting these candles, uh, the candles above, which are these extra souls, right, come down into the people. So again, we have this theme here of the human action, you know, which is precipitating action uh, or supporting action in the divine, right? And is imitating the divine, right? So the, right, the women are being the Shekhinah on earth, right? And lighting the Shabbat candles. The Shekhinah is lighting her candles, right? Up in the, you know, up in the heavenly realms. Uh, so here we see the Shekhinah as a kind of, you know, mother of the house sort of figure here. It seems like also a divine conduit in a similar way, right? That there's a a connection to the numinous through her. Yes, right. And right through the through the candle lighting, right, and also through her, right. Uh, and elsewhere, they talk about you know that on Shabbat, right, the Shekhinah is spreading her wings over the people, right, or on Sukkot, right, through the Sukkah, she's spreading her wings over the people, right, and protecting them. Now, there are fierce images of the Shekhinah also where she's a warrior and she's got shields in her hair and, you know, she's swallowing up mountains, you know. So these kind of domestic the, images. The Kali, the Kali uh, image. Exactly. So I don't want to give the impression that she's sort of only this kind of nice mother figure. You know, there are, there are lots of ways that they look at the Shekhinah and sometimes she's quite terrifying. Um, but they describe her as, you know, as, um, you know, Right, as mother, as house, right, as you know, bride, you know, all these things, and also as garden. She's also the orchard. She's called the holy apple orchard. So she's also the garden where souls grow, which I think is a really beautiful image. But she's also Baba Yaga. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I wanted to bring one more piece from the Zohar, which I really love. Um, which uh, this is in Zohar two twenty four b which talks about the creation of the human being. And it talks about both the Shekhinah and her mother, right? Her mother is this hidden aspect of the divine feminine called the Ima Ila'a, the supernal mother, also called Bina. And this text says that when the Holy One of Blessing created Adam's body, it was made from the Afra de Mikdashat de Tata, from the earth of the earthly temple. Now that's code, because the Zohar often speaks in code. That's code for the Shekhinah. She's the earth of the earthly temple. Right? Um, and she's called the earth because she is the embodiment of the divinity in the physical world. Right? She actually is literally the body of the world. Right? There are a number of texts that say this. The Shekhinah is the body of the world. Right? She, is, she provides the substance of the world through her being. But Adam's soul was given to him from the earth of the celestial temple. So I love this, the earth of the celestial temple. So it still has this wonderful embodied sense. Uh, so what is the earth of the celestial temple? Uh, that's Bina. Right? The soul comes from the heavenly mother, sort of this hidden celestial mother. Right? And the body comes from the Shekhinah, who's the manifest mother. 
right? Who's the uh, the tangible uh, divine feminine? So I've always been really intrigued by this, that we are an amalgam of earth from these two sources, earthly earth and heavenly earth. Let's come in for a landing. Is there something uh, you'd like to to bring out as a last text? I think I want to say something about Shekhinah in the contemporary world, Beautiful. you know, because these images are all very, very powerful. And they also require some working with because they are coming out of you know, it, a, a context in which it's still mostly men who are studying the mystical texts and thinking about it from their perspective. Uh, and so, for example, the Shekhin is often portrayed as a passive entity, right? She is like a, a pool into which all the waters flow, right? But she doesn't have anything of her own, right? But that's not how contemporary feminists talk about Shekhin, right? Where, uh, you know, where, you know, someone like Rabbi Leonovic is writing about the Shekhin, Right, that 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 text may be in the background, right? But there's definitely a much more sense of active celebration, right? That this is not just a, you know, the mirror of the, you know, of the masculine aspect of God, but there's a, you know, there's a tangibility, but also a, a, a wholeness to the Shekhinah, right? She's not missing anything. I think that notion of exile, which is so important to the Kabbalah in its classical form, um, you know, is spoken of differently you know, in a sort of in contemporary feminist mystical views of, you know, of the divine feminine, uh, because there's there's much more of a sense of the, the Shekhinah's wholeness uh, and uh, presence, you know, in the physical world in a, uh, in a way that is right the way it is. Right, not not broken, but you know, right exactly the way it is. And I think it's important to note that as people work with these images and more diverse people and readers are added to that mix, right, these images are gonna go on evolving. Right? They're not going to stay the same as the classical Kabbalah, right? They're gonna there's going to continue to be evolution. Right of uh, right of Shekhinah as a you know as a fundamental way that Jews encounter the divine. Amazing. And is there anything more you'd like to say? The story isn't over. You know, even in my lifetime, you know, I you know, began uh, with this you know these very exciting feminist images of the Shekhinah, and today people were saying things that I did not necessarily imagine that they would say. You know, when I began this journey years ago, you know, there's a whole new sense of the, of the exploding the gender binary, you know, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, there's all kinds of new insights, and I'm sure that will continue. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. It, it has been my pleasure to get to talk with you about this. Thank you to Rabbi Jill Hammer, PhD. It was an amazing conversation. We'll continue our study for the rest of this month of Nisan on the idea of Shekhinah. The text sheets are available in the description of the podcast in PDF format. Until next time, this has been the Neshama Project podcast. I'm Rabbi Ben Newman. Take care.